Before we start this podcast, we would like to take the opportunity to mention that we now have a Patreon page where you can help to support, evolve and continue these compassionate conversations. Please visit patreon.com slash voce dialogues for more information. Welcome everyone to the Voce Dialogues, Voices of Compassionate Evolution. I'm Chloe Goodchild, founder of The Naked Voice, and this is our new online community where we are exploring, deepening, and evolving our awareness of the transforming power of compassion. Enjoy these new dialogues with a wide range of artists, musicians, writers, and philosophers, social entrepreneurs, and sacred activists. They are all visionaries, transforming lives through the art of conscious creative expression with practices inspired by their own unique life experience. The Voce Dialogues are dedicated to the compassionate evolution of life on Earth. Well, hello everyone, and it is my great pleasure and joy to introduce you to Michael Brody, who is a very, very dear friend from New York. Hello and welcome to you, Michael. Hello, Chloe. It's a real pleasure to do this with you. Absolutely wonderful. Absolutely wonderful to be with you again, Michael. For those of you that don't know Michael, you are in for such a treat. I was lucky enough to meet Michael in India, in fact, and we'll come to that in a minute. But first of all, just to let you know, Michael is a violinist in Western, North Indian and Celtic music. He gives sound and health through music workshops, which use the silence between musical experiences as the way to greater awareness of the body, emotions and mind. Michael is a versatile performer and as an improviser he has collaborated with vocalists, storytellers and other creative artists. He studied Western and Indian violin and music and has performed in the US, England, Scotland and India, including at the International Festival in Jaipur, which is where we met. (laughs) Michael has recorded in India a series of Indian ragas for health CDs and so I really recommend you getting those and they include Sumanas, ragas for the heart, Vridi and Awakening Peace and for more information you can go to Michael Brody's website and to the soundandhealth.org website and that information will be in the podcast information too. So Michael it's just Really exciting to be in dialogue with you today. Oh my goodness. So as you're probably aware, one of the most central themes of this conversation is compassion. And to explore your experience and understanding of compassion and also how it's shown up in your life. But first of all, I mean, I just I just want to really celebrate my memory of first meeting you, which was when we were in India. It's the Delhi Aurobindo Ashram in yeah. Delhi. And I remember meeting you there. And there I was working with the wonderful Karuna Didi, the great uh, vocalist there, who was a student of Pandit Pranath, an extraordinary devotional singer. And, and she always reminded me visually of my own root teacher, Ananda Maima. But there you were. And uh, what are your memories of that? You remember what she said? We went to her cottage to do some ragas with her. 
she uh-huh. heard me playing with your voice and, and she insisted to Chloe, Michael needs to join you in Jaipur and perform with you. You invited me to join you in that concert. The rest is history. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, it was it was an utter blessing to meet you there and, and for us to travel on together. And so much, so much more fun for me that we did that because it was quite a tall order. My memory was that I'd met uh, one of the organizers of the Jaipur Music Festival. And in fact, the Maharani of, of Jaipur had actually been instrumental in asking me to go there because I'd sang at her son's memorial in london yes i remember you You right so michael this is just for people to share your extraordinary life and your experience of compassion as it's shown up for you in your personal life through music and whatever you want to share with us well one interesting point that comes to mind when you even mention the word compassion is that one of my spiritual teachers said that teaching is compassion we have, you know, work that we do, intellectual work, work with the body, work with the heart, and that teaching literally is about compassion. And I've always been attracted towards teaching. When I perform, I feel that I'm teaching. And though I've never gravitated towards uh, teaching the violin as an instrument, except on the occasion that someone comes to me, mm-hmm. when I perform, I talk, and I feel that it's a, a connecting with people compassionately. And when I give my workshops, of course, as well. Mm-hmm. That's lovely. And if we were just to sort of delve into that, uh, the nature of your teaching a little bit more deeply, I, I know that's going to really tell us a lot about your embodiment and our understanding of compassion. The workshop that I give is using the silence between music, not just the music. And that's something that came to me in my own experience. One day, actually, I was listening to a raga. <laughs> And the raga ended, and I said to myself, wow, this is more blissful than the music itself. The effect on my body, on my mind, and the clarity. So it gave me the idea of starting to do that with other people. Hmm. And in the workshops, we do that. I'll play various kinds of music or we'll vocalize together. And at each point that the music stops, we sit in silence. My goodness. Well, that's where certainly your world and my world really meets, uh, you know, because that's something that I'm so passionate about as well is the language of silence, which is not just the space between the ending of one thing and the beginning of the next. It is it has a whole dynamic language of its own, doesn't it? Which, as you say, is so impactful on the heart. Yeah. One of the interesting things I found is that I decided in my workshop not to give people very much instruction of what they're going to feel. I I usually mention a couple of things that they may notice, and sometimes I don't, that their breathing may change. It may get deeper and slower. I sometimes say that. I I might ask them to notice vibration of the music in their body. But what I get back afterwards, and feedback, always, always surprises me. What a... Changes emotionally, that they could sleep better, pain changed, calming... You know, I'll get various people telling me what happened for them. Mm. So it's a matter of trust and going with that. Lovely. And can people come just to one session or or, or is it a series of sessions or how does it work? So far, I've done them as one session at a time. Mm -mm. But I have considered lately 
the possibility of doing a series. I bet you get uh, people mm-hmm. returning wanting just to come back yeah. and, again and again. Yeah. yeah. One, one, one person I know who used to be a Tai Chi student of ours, of our school, she comes to every workshop. She loves particularly the Indian music in it and learning a bit about the Indian music in addition to uh, singing it with me and listening to it in the silence. And people are different in what they like. It's interesting to see in the feedback. Some people say, I relate more to your Indian and improvisation. Some people say, I like it when you play Bach. And there's uh-huh. very yeah. different. It's, it's, it's just a different world, isn't it? And that's... Yeah, that's... so I'll do both, a little of both, and I'll, I'll uh, tweak it at different times. I mean, to be able to be a musician that can cover the world, as in you really are a world musician, you're able to move through these different musical realities. They evoke such different quality of listening and mood and so on. I'd just love to know, because I don't think I know so much about how this all happened for you in terms of your earlier life. Were there voices uh, that inspired you in the earlier part of your life and, and led you in this direction of a kind of eclectic music making? Or did it just happen for you as a child? How did it all emerge and evolve? Yeah. There are two parts to the answer. One is the kind of music that I ended up gravitating towards. Well, I'll say that first, which is that I started with Western classical music. Then I studied Bach and all of the classical you know, works in the concertos as well. The Bach really stayed with me. And then when I was in university, Ravi Shankar came to town. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) And he and Alaraka performed annually at Carnegie Hall. And all I remember was that the first time I went to see them, I was blown away by the music. Before we come to all of that, what about like earlier? So what what age were you when you actually literally started your first lessons? Were you very young? I started what now would not be considered super young. I started when I was nine. Mm -hmm. But there's a photograph of me that I have when I was about two or three in front of a record player about to put a record on. Mm -hmm. And my aunt, my surviving aunt, my father's youngest sister, tells me that I never stopped listening to music from the time I was born. I I owe a lot of that to my mother, who, although she wasn't a musician, didn't sing loved music and it was in the house it was in my ears beautiful and that would just be a whole range a sort of diverse range of of sounds would it be yeah mm-hmm. and then i you know you're often inspired by other people to play i'm inspiring someone right now a six-year-old who's now going to, to learn the violin it's been very inspiring for me to do that first teacher is very important to you But just before I started, I remember a wonderful man named Roman Totenberg who came to Scarsdale and gave a concert. And as I watched him play, and this almost brings tears to my eyes, I remember looking at him and saying to myself, that's the instrument I want to play. It was no doubt in my mind. Goodness me. It's it's fascinating, isn't it? That's like, how does that happen? How did you know that? Something in you knew that. So your parents didn't tell you? You just... No. They didn't, they didn't even ask me to, to study music. People used to joke. I used to, used to say, didn't they push you to practice? And I said, well, the only memory I have of practicing is that practicing in the den at 10 at night, my father coming downstairs, and he said, could you maybe take a break? I'm trying to get to bed. <laughs> <laughs> it was the other way around. <laughs> but they supported me. And I was then on my second teacher, the one who said, uh, Bronstein, who said, 
now you need to practice three or four hours a day if you want to work with me at the next level. And it was a joy for me. Wow. Because <laughs> he inspired me and he gave me what to do with each hour. It was different for each hour. It was just, yeah, it's amazing. I never wouldn't have, wouldn't have guessed earlier that I could have enjoyed yeah. I mean, it's incredible, isn't it, that those teachers, all you need is one teacher like that. I remember my clarinet teacher was like that when I was at college. He seemed to be able to play the clarinet with one hand, and I never quite understood it because the other hand was sort of expressing what he was inviting me to express myself. But he can't have been doing that. <laughs> you know, it was, it was quite uncanny. It was so inspiring, though. My last teacher that I worked with a little bit, who was the assistant to my last teacher who was at Juilliard when I was across the street at Columbia, he yeah. said to me, if you teach, I want you to know something. He was teaching at Juilliard with her. He said, I want you to know something. The first teacher is the most important one. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I'll yeah. never forget my first teacher, Kazu Kawamoto. I mean, she had such a love of teaching and of me and, and her students that it was very important. The other thing that drew me to music was just that some part of me knew after seeing Ravi Shankar in the later years when I lived in England, in London, I knew somehow that I was attracted to music and consciousness. Mm. And I later entered uh, spiritual work with a teacher who, re- who did use some music as well and had that orientation. And I just knew that my orientation towards music had to do with uh, using it for awareness. Not for entertainment, but for mm-hmm. enlightenment, for us to become aware of ourselves, as you do. This is amazing, Michael, because what's really interesting to me is was that our meeting, it's like, you know, when some people, when two people meet that have never met before, sometimes it takes quite a long time, doesn't it? You know, you get to know each other, you sort of go through all kinds of personality, communication, and then, you know, ideally a, a deeper communication kicks in. But it was literally through music making that I met you, actually, if I think about it. And somehow we both knew, as you just said, the same thing. We'd both come at our own musical discipline from the same impetus which which is as you said at the beginning so beautifully which is the desire to teach or perhaps even to transmit a quality of love really isn't it it's it's a quality of 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 loving presence so you're giving a gift of your experience of music and then sharing that with others which is where the compassion piece comes in. So I never remember having any problem. We, we just sort of started, didn't we? We, yes. we barely rehearsed, really. Yeah. We didn't need to. I looked over what you were going to sing, but it was very innate. You see, when you say we didn't need to, see, that would be unthinkable <laughs> to many musicians, kind of, quote, more uh, traditional musician makers. You would need to definitely meet and definitely rehearse and get it right and, you know, play what's on the page. Oh, yeah. You might like this story. I used to play with Diane Volkstein, who passed away, one of the most wonderful storytellers of, of our world. And we were rehearsing, and I, she said to me, I need to know, you know certain things ahead of time. And I said, Diane, when I play with you, you know, it's not going to be what we decide now because it's going to be in the moment. And she said, I know that. She said, I just wanted to decide approximately when you might play and when you might not decide. <laughs> He had a rule, which I thought was just wonderful. Only a storyteller would know this. She said, never play music while the character is talking. Oh. 
very good. Because that is the music at that point, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, that's the energy of the character. That's a whole music unto itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's lovely. And how lovely to play music with a speaking voice. Yes, it was lovely. Because the storytelling is, is a wonderful bridge, really, isn't it? You know, between just kind of ordinary everyday speak and more ecstatic or mystical deliverance of speech as through mystical poetry, for example, or something like that. And so the storyteller has to be able to, presumably has to be able to look all ways, up, down, to the right, the left. It's a 360-degree communication of a storyline, a given storyline, in order for the magic to be felt by the audience or by the listeners. Yeah. Yeah, Chris Salt, a wonderful storyteller, actress, poet, who lives with her husband in London and also has a place in southeast Scotland. We did something together with some hymns of the Rig Veda, wow. translated by my friend Jean LeMay. And she did a beautiful thing with me. She spoke with that beautiful intonation, inflection of her voice, and I played mm. while she spoke. It was lovely. Oh, my God. Now that's just gorgeous. Oh, I can't wait to improvise with you some more, quite frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Because do you remember we, we, we played with that Brazilian cajon player? Yes. And yes. he said just what we just said. I don't know if you remember, but we asked him in French because he didn't speak English. We both spoke French to him. We asked him in French. You asked him, do you want me to translate the Rumi that I'm going to read for you? And he replied, ce n'est pas nécessaire, je peux le sentir. Oh, it's not yeah. necessary. I'm going to feel it. Yeah, and boy, did he! And he did, didn't he? He would, he would start playing a rhythm after something very quiet that you did that took us into this, into the, in this beautiful silence, and he would suddenly start a rhythm, and it was just what you needed for the next thing, exactly. and he knew he knew it implicitly without having to even be told, just in his bones. Yeah, it's I lovely. I love that. Thank you for that lovely reminder too, because it was it was such an extraordinary evening. What it was like a sort of it was quite dreamlike, wasn't it? Because it was in Amer Fort or somewhere, one of those amazing castles in Jaipur. And my memory was of rose petals, and there was a terrific dawning of of the space. You know, just like only the Indian culture can do, creating such an extraordinary beauty everywhere that in the scent and the fragrance of the place and the, the look of it. And it was so magical, wasn't it? It was really out of this world, literally. Yeah, we helped transform that audience. And it's really what makes it work. As you said, when you give a workshop or I give a workshop, it's always for the person doing the workshop. They're bringing their own, all of their experience and presence to the moment. Right. And that's what they can do. And then what's so lovely is when the people in the workshop, go there with you. And it's, and it's like, so affirming. Like, I see people close their eyes in the workshop, in person, and I think, I think we'll be silent for about a minute, but I'm going to keep my, I'm going to look around occasionally, and if someone fidgets, I'll go on to the next thing. I waited once for three minutes, and no one was moving. Everyone's uh -huh. eyes were closed, and I went on. And, and at the end, I asked them at the end, I said, was that three minutes too long or could you have gone longer? And they all said, we could have gone longer. Yeah, I bet. I they bet. were really deep, yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. It is, because now I say, I ask all my students not so much to listen to the voice in the early stages, but to listen to the quality of silence the voice leaves behind. Ah, you're doing the same thing. 
exactly <laughs> the same as you. I mean, we're we're literally we we're must really be exactly the same thing. Yeah, born by the same mother somewhere along I the line. So. <laughs> I, I said to Zakir Hussein, as you know who he is, he was oh, gotcha. a tabla player, son of Alaraka, who came to Chari Shankar. At the Rubin Museum, I went up to him and I said he was giving a talk, and I said, you know, Zakirji, there are people who say that you need to really spend years getting into the music of another culture before you can appreciate it. And I fell in love with Indian music. The first moment I heard your father in Ravi Shankar, and he looked at me and he said, Michael, all of you Westerners who are doing this, you've all been Indian before. You've all had it in you before. Oh, it's already in you. Yeah. Did you get the same experience as I had when you first touched down in India? It's like, ah, oh, I'm home. Yes. Yeah. I yeah. love it. What also interests me about you and the similarities of our kind of orientation is your connection with Celtic music as well. I love Celtic music. You know how I came to it? When I was looking for a teacher of Indian music when I came back from London, I met someone and Tony said to me, I'm going to introduce you to Rube Verma, but you also must go to the Irish Arts Centre and learn Irish music because there is some connection between the two and uh, Vasant Rai, Sarodpa had done a, an album putting them together. I felt totally in love with Celtic music, and I feel that they're very connected, but I've come up with theories, or other people have theories, of why these cultures are connected, but in any case, there's something there, and mm -hmm. they're both very beautiful in that way. It's interesting, isn't it? When I think of the three countries, of uh, the three eyes, I call them, India, Ireland, and Italy, those three realms. I'm more at home in those countries than anywhere else. Well, actually, Greece as well now. Crete yeah. very strongly because of the connection with the modal music and so on. And I know the modal music has been very influential also in your playing. Interesting you say that. Mm. Yeah, the modal music as well. I mean, the Indian raga, of course, mm. contains the modes and everything else. But mm. there is that modal music. And we were just talking beforehand that... Pythagoras talked about music as healing, and I wish he'd said more, but I think we have to rediscover it. But I believe in his writings he mentioned the Dorian mode, and the nephew of a good friend of mine, who studied this a lot, said that if you look closely in the writings, the mode names changed, and by the time the uh, church modes, the Greek modes changed to the church modes later, what he was referring to as Dorian is what is actually now called Phrygian and that that's a healing mode. And I have occasionally used that in the workshop, although many scales work, but it is mm. very... Oh my goodness, there's a whole other podcast just simply on the musical modes, I bet, because I, I love that. I just ran a 14-week course on the modes uh, as evocations of different states of soul and so on. And it's, it's just so fascinating to be able to explore with people that think they're not musical, how the emotional moods and the musical modes our gifts to each other, really. Yes. Mm. I just always keep up some of the movements of the solo Bach. Mm. And there's a lot of emotion in that, too, which comes across. So I'll try to use that in the workshop in a way that's most meditative. Mm -hmm. uh, Gorgeous. Would you feel like at any point during this conversation playing your violin? Oh, I'd be glad to. That'd be um, amazing. There are two things that I could do. Mm -hmm. I could play... I would only play a few moments of Bach. Mm -hmm. and the other was to, my thought was to play you something in Raga for mm. just a few seconds, and then silence for about five or ten seconds to see what that feels like. I'll play 
just a few notes of Bach first, because this will warm me up. Our Tai Chi teacher once said to me after performing, always play something fast before you play something slow, because you'll be relaxed enough to play the slow thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to play a few notes of Bach with Yeah, we both started at the same time. Yeah, it was just enough to get the feel of it. Thank you so much. I mean, there's so much more there that obviously we would all love to hear more. I think that's what I especially appreciate about your presence and about your relationship with the world is the way that you can just very simply just play something, however short. And it is a gift of service. It is, and it instills that sense of relaxation, rest, and compassion for oneself and for the world around one there's nothing that does that more powerfully i think it's a real pleasure to do yeah so did you grow up in a world that was family life uh, pretty conducive to your needs were you one child do you have siblings i have two siblings mm -hmm. love music mm. one continues to play mm. and the other continues to love music very much I do remember as a childhood going to the Jewish temple mm. and what spoke to me, no surprise, more than anything was the music. Mm. You know, it was music about something holy. The music was really what took me there. Mm -hmm. So again, I had that. So I had the, the Jewish music, which tends to be often in a minor harmonic scale, a little bit like for Indian music people out there, <laughs> Rag Kirvani. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It's sort of, it's not that far away, is it, from, you know, Irish folk song in, in a strange way, you know, that, that kind of, because mm. the Irish, a lot of the Irish music is very much in that kind of lamenting, but sort of longing and, and very compelling emotive sound. Mm -hmm. It is. And I love the laments. Yeah. Yes. It's such a gateway, isn't it, for people from states of sadness or sorrow or depression, that if you can actually embody the music of, of your own lament, that that can actually take you into deeper spaces of love. Oh, they're, they're uplifting. Mm. I remember a harpist at Ananda Ashram was playing mm. some O'Carolan tunes, and I sat down with him and started to play, he handed the music to me, and I played a lament of O'Carolan, 
And all I recall is as I started to play, I just said, oh, my God. It was so beautiful. It was moving me beyond to another place. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. 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 They're not only, they allow grief and also that uplifting that comes in that element of inspiration that goes. Mm. Oh, my goodness. You know, I'm I'm just so grateful for you that you have this incredible interior, very rich interior musical life. You know, because I'm just wondering what it's like to be in New York at this extraordinary time on Earth, this unprecedented time with this huge global reset going on. In many ways now we have a couple of resets happening at the same time, yes. hopefully going to change society and really make people look at what are the higher values of spirituality and equality for all of us and dignity, and also the, in, in the pandemic and just bringing us closer. Yeah, in New York, of course, where I am, in my apartment, it's not that I see the pandemic out my window, but of course I know what's happening around and we're all protecting ourselves. We're doing an enormous amount with me of people in the Tai Chi school that I've been blessed to be part of, both with students that we had in classes on Zoom, and also offering things to them. Mm. So that that way we're finding that we're actually getting more grounded in opening our hearts every day with these, where usually it was once a week and we met in person, now we're meeting more daily in person. So it's actually interesting, isn't it, how things are percolating. Yeah, isn't it incredible how it takes some kind of global disaster or a global crisis you could say you know some people were saying to me the other day how interesting it is it's almost as if until we have some kind of war potential or the the presence of an enemy will we actually all start coming together and generating good feeling and positive intention <laughs> and suddenly everybody's talking to everybody yeah but maybe the next era is about not requiring a war or you know, some kind of catastrophic situation for us to come together. And, of course, that's where music, again, is such an incredible voice and presence for people, isn't it? Particularly at the moment. Have you got a lot of people singing wildly from their balconies and so on? Is it, what's going on in <laughs> like in Italy, I wish they did. They, well, what's lovely is that at 7 p.m. all over the city, yeah. people clang, pots and pans, clap, and it's like a singing out of their windows. And it started as a, I guess it still is, to bless the healthcare workers oh, and all of those essential workers that are helping people. Mm-hmm. And now in the next phase, I feel like it's going even beyond that, showing a solidarity of people with the heart. And it's very, it's very beautiful. So we have that. Mm. Uh, oh, my goodness. That's amazing. I've, I'm now having sort of fantasizing about you being in, just sitting in Penn Station or somewhere and just <laughs> being yourself, just playing your instrument and transforming people's lives as they march around with their masks on, you know. It's bizarre, isn't it, that the mouths should be covered up. Like this terror that so many people experience of the voice, of the human voice, of, of basically expressing themselves. It's kind of bizarre in a way. Yeah, you know that too. I've had the same experience that you've had in having people in a workshop say to me, I didn't know I could sing. They said, are we going to have to sing? And I said, well, you don't have to be heard, and it doesn't matter to me what note you're singing. Mm-hmm. Just see what happens, but I will challenge you on your belief that you cannot sing. 
Great. Well, that's the big one at the moment, isn't it? Because I mean, I'm, I love how the Aborigines talk about sounding a new world into being, that that's why we're here as human beings, is to sound a new world into being. And I certainly hear you doing that through your beautiful workshops and your performances and collaborations and so on. Do you have a sense of where this is taking you now in your life, at this stage in your life, which is your, about halfway through, I suppose? Yeah, at least. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know if I'm going to... The age of that yogi, Swami Buha, the only person I've ever actually met who was over 120. Perfect. Yeah, <laughs> he, he really was, because we have a picture of him in 1973 that was given to me with one of my teachers, Oscar Chazo and Cheng Man Ching, two of my teachers. And he has a gray beard and looks like he's 80, and I met him 50 years later. So anyway, um, we don't know. But I think continuing this work, really, the work with sound and meditation is really integral to me and with silence. And I was giving the workshop in England at one of our Tai Chi camps, and my friend Barbara, another teacher, was there. And I said, I'm glad it went so well. I introduced one work with the vowels that came to me from one of our teachers. How did you like it? And she said, it's very effective, but you don't need to use anyone else's work but your own. Ah, and that was really lovely. That's so important, isn't yeah. it? And that idea that sound can just come out of you and it has a life of its own is, is unthinkable to so many people, isn't it? Until, of course, they're doing it and then they realize it's easy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was performing once uh, Ragyaman on the violin and I realized, I had realized earlier that if I sing a phrase, the phrase comes to me vocally better than on the violin. So what I was doing was very quietly sotto voce, vocalizing a phrase, it came right out, I would go, uh, and then I would play it. That was my next phrase. Uh, and then I would play it. At the end of the concert, one of my friends said, were you singing while you were playing? And I said, well, actually I was. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I'm sure you're reminding me of Ashkenazi or somebody like that. No, no, no. It's... Uh... Yeah. Yes. Keith Jarrett, isn't it? I think, but I think Ashkenazi does it as well, doesn't he? Uh, Keith Jarrett certainly does make a lot of noise when he's. Oh, he does. In Pablo Casals, if you listen to his, listen to his recording for Kennedy at the White House. It's hard to get hold of now. Yeah. Mendelssohn, piano trio, the most beautiful thing I've ever heard in my life. I listened oh. to him, and he's singing while he plays. He can't help himself. Oh. Gorgeous, gorgeous. Oh, my goodness me. Well, I'll, I'll ask a friend of mine who literally, believe it or not, was brought up with Casals, was very often in their sitting room as a child. So I'll, I'll find out from him what his experience was of Casals playing. I'll do that, yeah. yeah. Casals yeah. in our lifetime, which is very beautiful. You know, we've not seen him. And, we and, are just so blessed, aren't we? we we're we, blessed. We are just so blessed, as everyone is, once you know you realise that you actually have nothing but a musical soul, really. Everybody has access to this. And I can really hear how compassion is playing itself out through your own life as a teacher and as someone who is bestowing and transmitting your love of sound as a spiritual practice with others. So I thank you so much for joining me in this conversation. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. Thank you, Michael. Oh.